We are in our season we call the season of the writings. Uh, We're going to the book of Esther today. What we typically do in the summer is spend some time in some of what we call the wisdom writings of the Old Testament or the letters of the New Testament. This summer we're going to spend four or five weeks on Esther and then we're going to go to Philippians. Um, and, and Esther is a fascinating book. Uh, it happened about oh, just before 500 years before Jesus. Um, it's after the exile when the Jews have been, they've been exiled to Babylon. They stayed there for a while. And then when the Babylonians were overrun by the Persians, a guy named Cyrus allowed the Jews to go back home. And a lot of them did, but some of them still stayed in the area of Persia. And so this is a story that happens uh, under a king named Xerxes in that area of Persia, like I say, about 500 years before Jesus. It all happens in the, in the city of Susa, which was the capital where the king Xerxes lived. And, and the story of Esther is, is celebrated every year by the Jews in a celebration called Purim. Because what happened was Esther was placed into the, the, the role of queen and was able to save the Jewish people from extermination. Uh, You'll hear the story if you haven't heard it before as we come through. Uh, there's really four main characters in the story. There's Xerxes. Sometimes your Bibles will call him Ahasuerus. He went by both names depending on who translates the Bible. He's the king of Persia in the story. There's his favorite right-hand man, a guy named Haman. Now, the funny thing is Haman is the bad guy in the story. And every time in Purim when they read the story of Esther, they actually, whenever Haman's name comes up, 54 times in the book, people will yell and shout and boo and hiss. Have you seen those New Year's uh, noisemakers that people make? They actually use those to drown out Haman's name. So he doesn't come into our story today, but from now on as we go through Haman, when, when I read his name, I want you guys, he's the bad guy. So, I want, so let's just practice. If I say Haman, you're... Okay. I'm not kidding, like, like Jewish families will actually write Haman on the bottom of their feet, and when the story is read, when they hear his name, they'll stomp their feet, because he's the bad guy, right? Haman is the bad guy. Then you've got this guy, Mordecai, who is a Jewish uh, older gentleman, and he seems to have some role in the king, maybe, maybe an advisor of some sort, or involved in the management or supervision within the king's uh, administration, and there is his cousin, Esther, whose parents have died, who he's taken care of. So those are basically the four characters we're going to come back to over and over. The story begins as the king is planning a battle against the Greeks. His father, about three years before, had been going to attack the Greeks and was killed in a battle just outside of Athens, and he wants to get vengeance and take over the Greeks. So it's taken him about three years to settle. After he became king, he had this older brother who for some reason thought he should be king. You know how that goes in those stories? So it took him three years to kind of solidify everything. And now he's decided he's going to take on Greece. So what he does is he calls the leaders of every province in his empire, 127 provinces, into his capital city. He throws a seven-day party for them, or a party for them. And then he spends six months planning how to defeat the Greeks with all these governors and rulers of all the different provinces. And that's where we pick up the text. So I'm going to read, we'll start with chapter 1, verses 1 to 22. And we're going to read a little bit of chapter 2, but we'll mainly do the reading from chapter 1. 
This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 120 provinces stretching from India to Kush, which is Egypt. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. And for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. And when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, and mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. And Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. And on the seventh day, when the King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Meumen, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, this is why you go to seminary, I promise you, the, the, Abagtha, Zethar, and Karkos, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And then the king became furious and burned with anger. <laughs> Some of you are just going to love th this next part. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshina, Shethar, Ad Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsena, and Memukan the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and who were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. And then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the people of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Those women, you got to keep them in line, let me tell you. There, I'm teasing when I say that. If you don't know me, I'm really teasing here, okay? Please do not let that show up in the Hope Standard next week. <laughs> Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. And then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Mamukan proposed, and he sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. Well, we start by this story that happened a long time ago in Persia. It, it sounds like a long time ago. For those of you who read the dynamics uh, between the, the male and female and the power dynamics and all that, it was 2,500 years ago. 
And this story of Esther has been told and retold many, many times. Every year, as I said in Purim, they read it, they celebrate the story of Esther. But, but the question comes to us, like, this is really old. I mean, things don't happen that way anymore, right? People don't get put into places of power and position because of the way they treat other people in power and authority. And people aren't elevated just because of how they look. That doesn't happen anymore, does it, right? We, we've moved past that. Maybe not. We'll see. One thing for sure hasn't changed. Rulers enjoy displaying the fact that they have all the trappings of success. And that's what you see at the beginning. Xerxes has this battle coming that he's planning for, and he wants to inspire confidence in his entire empire. So he throws a banquet for all the leaders, all the governors, and then for six months he displays his, it says in verse 4, the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. This is like an extended pep rally for the Persians. It's what it is. It's trying to get everybody on board that we are the greatest country. We are going to win this battle. He's doing that for six months. And at the end of the six months, as they plan the battle and plan what they're going to do, when they finally get done with that, he throws a party for seven days. Now imagine a seven-day party, right? I remember my kid's birthday party. Sometimes it felt like seven days. <laughs> it's only a couple of hours, but it felt like... But imagine, you know, if, if your kid got invited to a birthday party and they said, well, bring him back next week or come pick him up in a week. A seven-day party, and not only is it a seven-day party, but it's for every single person that lives in the city. This is brigade days on steroids, right? <laughs> Everything is free. It's, it's a huge party, right? Uh, this is one of the... There were four capital cities in the empire, but Susa was a large city. There were blue and white hangings. that were the national colors. There were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of, of costly stones, there was wine in unique goblets of gold with no limits. Imagine brigade days with the free beer garden for seven days, right? And, and, and meanwhile, there's another party going on that Queen Vashti is hosting for all the women in the city. This is everybody. This is festive for an entire week. And then the king, who rules over 127 provinces, meets his match. In verse 10, seventh day, in high spirits from wine. What do you think that the theological term for that is drunk? He's drunk, right? And he calls for Vashti to perform her trophy wife duty. You can just see it playing out, right? He's drunk. He's been drinking for seven days as well as everybody else. And he calls the queen, who is beautiful, to come and parade in front of an entire city of men who've been drinking for seven days. How many of you would find that an appealing request, right? And so what we, what we see then is a queen's prerogative and a king's response. She says no. Now that, that took some guts because this was the guy in verse 1 it says he ruled over 127 provinces all the way from India to Egypt. He was the boss. And he asked her to come and she said no. And he was a little put out. So much so that he consulted with all the experts, and it's almost laughable when we read it today, right? I, I love that line. What is it? 
after you make this ruling, after you depose the queen, she's no longer the queen, she can never come before you, and after we put another one in her place, then verse 20 says, then all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. That's all you got to do, king, and then all the women are going to respect their husbands. You just need to pass a law, right? And then that part, yeah, that's, that's how it works. And then the women would pass a law saying the husband should actually listen to me and not try to fix all my problems, but just listen, and they would all live happily ever after, right? The passing of laws doesn't change the dynamic, right? You see, this whole chapter and the whole cultural context in Susa was all about power and ego. Xerxes was showing off. He was elevating himself. And when Vashti got in the way of that, he was going to use his power and his ego to deal with it. When our ego gets curtailed, when something we want to make us look good doesn't come together, we get angry and we try to make it work, somehow using our own power. And that's what's happening. And now the story continues in chapter 2 with what I I call two seemingly unrelated events. I'll read you the first verse of chapter 2, which is interesting to me. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done to him and what he had decreed about her. I don't know how much later is later, but he's so mad and so drunk that it takes him a while to remember everything that's happened. And then he realizes, hey, I don't have a queen anymore. So... I'll spare you the details of the beauty pageant. You can read it at home if you want. But for the next 16 verses, there's this long-term beauty pageant where they bring in all the beautiful women in the entire empire and they subject them to beauty treatments and everything that could possibly happen so the king can pick his favorite, right? Uh, And we we pick it up. Uh, If you look down in verse... um, It's this process, and this is your next thing on the outline, choosing a new queen. But we pick it up in verse 17 and 18. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. You can see what this king likes to do, right? He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So... So there's this process of choosing a new queen in chapter 2. And then there's this other story at the end of protecting the king. Let's just look at verses 19 down to 23 of chapter 2. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality. She was Jewish, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, and giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Now, you've got the beauty pageant. And you've got this assassination attempt that Mordecai uncovers, and it says they were hanged on a gallows. The Hebrew there, literally, the word for gallows is literally a pole. I'm, I'm hearing myself buzz, Les. Are you working on it? Yeah. Stay where I'm at? That's all right. We'll figure it out. 
I just, I, I'm, I, it's a powerful sound. I like that. <laughs> it appeals to my power and my ego, but no, it's, that's better now. It's better now. Comes and goes. Yeah, it must be the spirit moving in me, right? Is that what it is? Comes and goes. Just kidding. But the interesting thing is you have these two stories, and, and the question that's fascinating about this to me is, oh, I was back to, to stick. I'm sorry, I lost my track. Uh, gallows is actually the word pole. And historical scholars, I'm telling you this just because I know camp staff will like this, especially the guys. It's not hanging on a gallows so much as they used to take the guy to the top of the pole and just throw him onto it and impale him. And so that, when, when you read that, that's the image of what they did to these two guys. So and it's fascinating, the things that are going on in this culture. You see the big party, right? You see all that stuff. Um, you see uh, the queen selection process, what that is. You see the assassination attempt that's foiled and what the king does with that when Mordecai gives the secret to Esther. Uh, but, but the question is, really, the question is, how is this, how do we apply this? What, what is it? Is it, it's the meaning of this sermon that if you go out and you hear somebody's attempting to assassinate Pierre Elliott Trudeau or whatever, no, not what's Justin Trudeau? No, sorry, Trudeau. Is the moral of this sermon that you should turn the person in? You probably should turn the person in. But, but do you see how sometimes the Bible tells a story and how does that have authority in us? Why, why the history lesson is the question. Why would it, it do these things, and how are we supposed to apply? It's a, it's a great story. It's, it's, a, it's a historical narrative. There's lots of things that can be verified in this story about the Persian Empire. But what's the application? What do we take from these first two chapters of Esther and say, oh, yeah, God, I can apply that to my life? How do we take a story of a culture so far from, removed from us? I mean, the Bible says in Romans 15:4 that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So what does this mean? How do we apply these weird stories? Is that a good question? I hope so, because I'm going to answer it, hopefully. Right? <laughs> well, first of all, and, you, and I've already kind of alluded to this, this is, we, we are often living in the same story 2,500 years later. We really are. Imagine... A ruler throwing a lavish celebration to exalt himself. <laughs> just let that sink in. Believe me, I did not plan this sermon for this Sunday. But just imagine that. Imagine leaders, political leaders, leaders of corporations living by pride and ego. Imagine people being valued by how they play to the agenda of the powerful and how willing they are to be used for the power and the ego of another. Imagine that. Doesn't that sound a lot like today, right? Ecclesiastes chapter 1. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything in which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. You see, those in power haven't changed that much over the 2,500 years. But now here's the kicker, because <laughs> we love talking about those in power, because most of us are not those in power. I don't think any of us are those in power, unless there's somebody here I don't know about. I mean, program director at camp is a big deal. I know that. <laughs> but we love talking about those in power, but where it gets personal 
and a little more uncomfortable is this fact. It's not just kings and powerful people who are like this. All humanity tends toward power and ego. Now we expect it from kings and rulers. I mean, it's even biblical. Psalm 2 says, The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. It's expected by the kings, but it's not because they're in positions of power that they tend toward power and ego. It's because they're human. Their public positions just make it more visible. And, and the, the truth is, all of humanity struggles with power and control and ego, self-centeredness. There's a verse in 1 John 2.16. It says, everything in the world, and then it lists three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Those three things, the lust of the flesh, what we want, what we desire, what we crave, what we think we have to have. I want this. Xerxes wants Vashti to show off so that he looks more powerful. The lust of the eyes, what we can see. Look at this beautiful queen, right? But we have the same thing. We want the things we see. We scroll through Wayfair and Amazon and all that, and what do we see? The ads on TV, we want those things. And this pride of life that we want to the world really to revolve around us and what we want. Now, it's interesting when you go back to Genesis 3, this verse isn't going to come up, but just listen. Think of those things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, and listen to Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and it was pleasing to the eye, lust of the eyes, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, pride of life. She took some. And she ate it. See, the way the world works is that we see things, we want things, and we want to be the center of attention. We all, to some degree, struggle with power and ego. Now, the reason it's so obvious with people who are in positions of power is they have the ability to demonstrate that, whereas some of us, our, our heart, we can't actually do the things we want because we're limited. We don't have the finances to show how ego-centered we actually are. And we can get focused on Xerxes or the culture of that day or the leaders of today, and we feel so superior. But one of the things I think we need to realize is that down deep, when it's, when it's really opened up, we're not so different than they are. Richard Rohr, a great quote that I ran across by him. He says, Christians are usually sincere and well-intentioned people until you get to any real issues of ego, control, power, money, pleasure, and security. Then they tend to be pretty much like everybody else. We are often given a bogus version of the gospel, some fast food religion, without any deep transformation of the self, and the result has been the spiritual disaster of Christian countries that tend to be as consumer-oriented, proud, warlike, racist, class-conscious, and addictive as everybody else, and often more so, I'm afraid. And I think he's right. I think sometimes we, we, we keep our focus on these people in power and how horrible they are because it deflects the spirit away from our own heart and our issues of power and control and ego. We tend to act from these shallow places in ways that support our pride and our ego. And if we're really smart, we can actually, this is, this is what we're good at. 
We can actually use our religious practices and rituals and beliefs to support our pride and our ego. Because those religious leaders talk the game, but man, we're here on church on Sunday. But we are a lot better than them. I, this cartoon flipped across my desk this week. You're a believer, yes, but you skipped the not being a jerk about it part. <laughs> now, I, I don't think St. Peter's sitting there checking people in. I think the cross has dealt with all that. But I love that because far too often, just because we're religious doesn't mean that we don't have issues of pride and ego. Sometimes they're just better camouflaged. And we look down on others and we elevate ourselves over other people just like Xerxes was doing. And see, following Jesus will expose where you're tending toward power and ego. And notice what happened. What happened when Vashti told Xerxes no? He got mad, right? And, and that's one clue in the spiritual life. When you get angry about something, now sometimes it's legitimate, but sometimes the reason we get angry is because somebody has stepped on our ego and limited our power and our control. And, and one of the questions you always need to ask yourself when you find that anger rising up in you is why? Because we just, just, if I'm angry, it's because they did something to me. Well, what is that uncovering in me? See, your anger can give you insight into one, the lust of the flesh, the, li- the lust of your eyes, and the pride of your life has entered the driver's seat of your vehicle, and somebody is not letting you go where you want to go. There's questions in the study guide this week. What's made you angry recently, and what might God be saying to you through that? That's, that's worth reflecting on. Think about that. That's, that's, that's one of the things I think this story says to us, is we are more like Xerxes in a limited sense than we'd like to admit sometimes. And the Spirit wants to strip that away from us. Now, second issue that's here has to do with, how many times did you see the word God in chapter 1 and 2? Did anybody see the word God how many times? None, zero. And just so you know, the, the word God is never mentioned in the entire book of Esther. Not once is it referred to, is he referred to, is he worshipped, nothing happens about God in the entire book. That's why I've titled the series, Where is God? And every week we'll look at where is God when certain things are happening. Today it's where is God when the world seems to be run by people who live for power and ego. Where is God in this? Why is it that far too often in our world God seems to be hiding? Now this is not a new idea for the Bible. One of my favorite psalms when things aren't going well, which is occasionally on my life. Psalm 13, just listen to this. This is, I love this psalm. This is a prayer that you can pray. Camp staff, you can pray this all summer long. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. See, he he doesn't get an answer. God doesn't say two more weeks. Okay, great. He just says in the middle of the how long, he still says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. See, often where we live, it seems like God is a million miles away. We have this soundtrack to our life and the drumbeat in the soundtrack is why? Why? Why, God? Why are you allowing this? 
So we even, we even talked about that early on in our Hebrews series, in Hebrews 2.8. In putting everything under him, Jesus, God left nothing that is not subject to him, yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. In our very world, we, we, we hear the truth that Jesus is Lord of all, but we don't see it actually played out. It's just like these first two chapters. Where is God in all this stuff? It doesn't appear that he's running the show, and that's, you know, we lose that when things are going good for us, right? This is an exciting two chapters for Esther and for Mordecai. Think about it from Vashti's perspective. It's not so exciting, right? When, when things are going well, we, we don't miss God not being so present, but when things are hard, we think, where are you? When we feel that God is nowhere to be seen, as we, as, as we see in the book of Esther all the way through, we have to remember that we're called to live in faithfulness to a deeper story. Something bigger is going on here. Something bigger is going on with Esther going from a nobody to queen, with Mordecai uncovering an assassination plot. Something bigger is going on. These events are important, and they're being guided by someone who's not even mentioned in the entire book. That's the point. See, in our moment-to-moment life, we get lost, and we're, we're called to be faithful to this bigger story, the story of Jesus coming, of him redeeming us, of him renewing all things, of him changing and transforming not just us, but a, a, our community, Right? A story that ends with a new heaven and a new earth and no more tears or suffering or sorrow or pain. That's the story we need to live faithful to even when we don't see it happening. See, the world all around us shows us power. It shows us all the trappings of success. It shows us people on the top and we feel like we're on the bottom. It shows us how to get to the top in a value system that's rooted in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and pride of life. You've got to do things the way the world does or you're never going to get anywhere. But we have to remain faithful to a deeper story that says Jesus is the one who's returning to transform and make everything new. Even when we don't see it. Quote by Will Willimon, who's a Methodist guy down in Alabama that I really like. To be a Christian means gradually, Sunday after Sunday, to be subsumed into another story a different account of where we have come from and where we are going, a story that is called gospel. And you are properly called a Christian when it's obvious that the story told in Scripture is your story above all other stories that the world tries to impose on you and that the God who is rendered in Scripture is the God who has got you. I love that quote. You are a Christian when you're living by this deeper story of Jesus and who he is and what he's doing and not being distracted by this story that seems to be happening up here that we see all the time. You know, that's why we come here every week. That's why we make these commitments, the commitment to worship. One of the reasons I think public communal worship is so important is because every week we need to come back and remember the truth. We need to remember the story. We need to confess our sins and remember Jesus is big enough. We need to sit around a table where we're forgiven, not because of our power and our success and our strength, but because we're broken and welcomed. That's the story that we need to be faithful to. And it's hard when you don't see God. It's hard if you disconnect from from a body, from a group of believers. It's very hard to keep faithful to that deeper story. And that's why we come week after week 
to remember that. That's why we, we seek to learn. That's why we try to live in relationships. That's why we, we want to be involved in mission is to remind us of this deeper, faithful story that's going on. Once again, we just read Hebrews 11. All those people in chapter 11 were living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they left, they would have had opportunity to return there. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, a bigger story, something that's truer than what they see. See, the key to living faithful to that story is to see who Jesus is and to remember the very wise words of my friend Chris Bryan. The truth is that nothing never happens. Nothing never happens. You get that? You English majors, that's a double negative, right? And what that actually means is something is always happening, even when it doesn't make sense. Even when the, the king, who you don't even respect, is throwing a seven-day party for everybody to get drunk, and he's, he's thinking that, that he can impose laws that will change the way husbands and wives will respect each other. And, and, and even when good things are happening and the queen's being exalted and when you're uncovering an assassination attempt, the key thing is to realize that something deeper is going on than what you see on the surface. Nothing never happens. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. There's stuff going on even when you don't see it. And that, that's, that's the essence of faith. I can't explain it. I can't prove it to you. That's what we want. We, we don't necessarily want faith. We kind of want proof. That's why we spend so much time arguing about Scripture with people, because we want to prove it. But ultimately, there comes a point where we have to say there's a deeper story happening here, even when I don't see it, and I'm just going to believe that that's true by faith and live out of that story. One of the most radical faith passages of the whole Bible is Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. That's, we know that in all things, that means in everything in your life. And I'm, I don't say this tritely or without, I'm not trying to just steamroll your most negative, painful experiences. But I'm saying what faith says is in those experiences, God is doing something deeper. If you can rest and if you can trust in that, nothing never happens. You know, as we worship together, we remember that deeper story. We come to a very different kind of banquet today, right? It's only juice. It's not even wine and it's limited. But it reminds us of this deeper story that the God who's over it all would be broken so that we could be welcomed home, so that we could be a part of what he's doing. It's a very different banquet than the banquets we see happening in Susa. This is a banquet where our pride and our ego die, but we get to be reborn. Let's pray. God, far too often we get wrapped up in, in what we see, the way we want things to go. And the reality is life is very hard. It's hard to understand. It's hard to experience. At times, we, we don't see you at all or understand what you're doing. 
And I just pray you can help us to hold on to the fact that even when you're not visible, you are at work. That you've, you've given us yourself, as we see in this table, to help us remain faithful to a deeper story. Help us to do that, God. Help us to, to trust in the middle of the darkness that you are with us. Even as you said, you will never leave us or forsake us. I don't know where, where people are today, but wherever they are, I just pray that they will be able to rest in the fact that you are with them, even if it appears you're not. That you are working things together for their good, even if it feels like this could never be for my good. Help us to, to trust and by faith rest in your leadership and your guidance. In Jesus' name. Amen. Washed his disciples' feet, which was a metaphor for really what he was doing on the cross, right? He was, he was taking the lowest position and serving them, and he said, Now that I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And in the same way, what, what I want you to see today is, is it's not the power and the control and the ego. It's not the big, flamboyant strength that God calls us to. He calls us to serve the way we've been served, to let our lives be broken and poured out for the world around us, to remember that deeper story and be faithful to it. And that's my prayer for you this week. Now, because we're done so early, you realize at 10 o'clock service, I could have preached for another hour. <laughs> but we, we've got coffee on in the foyer and there's some treats out there. I'm telling you that if you have little kids, you might not want to let them roam to the foyer unattended because uh, they could get seven brownies by the time you get there. So... <laughs> But we want people to feel free to stay around and grab coffee and visit in the foyer. Stay as long as you like. God bless you this